0: I want it now too, who doesn't? I want sanity back, that's what I want now. I want my time back, that's what I want. Uh, I want it all. So today is July 31st, 2023. There goes another summer. Here we head into an August with no Congress, a lot of news chasing tales, but the real issues to hand are not being discussed. So last week, it came to my attention that American citizens that would want to travel overseas, let's say, to go to Europe, in order for them to go, they actually have to apply for a visa. Now, for those of you that have never applied for a visa, the process is you give them all this information, then they'll ask you for a lot maybe some biometrics too. And then they will respond and tell you, yes, we will allow you to come to our country for so many days, or no, we shall not. The United States, for those of you that cherish your American citizenship, know that when you fly to most countries in the world, you don't have to apply for a visa if you're there on vacation. So if you're going to Australia on vacation, you don't really need to apply for a visa. Uh, You know, if it's part of a package, it's included. There's like coding in the way things are bought majority of the time. Never in Europe, hardly ever in Africa, unless you're staying or you have family or some history. Now everyone's on that. This is where the digital ID comes in. This is where all this work that was done in sharing your private health information globally for your benefit, of course, with all the biometrics on the system, with clear, with joint databases, the whole world is now on a system. And so now it's almost inevitable on how one would go forward. The fact that the United States has now lost this privilege means it's being implemented. And this will mean that people that want to go to Paris will have to apply for a visa. And maybe part of that visa, their stipulations is, you know, to wear, you know, a tracker or to get updated boosters to enter their country. And this is how control happens. And they can also shut down travel if they believe that your country is under a pandemic. I hope people can actually see where the war is happening right now and how it's happening because that's what i'm not seeing i'm not seeing people understanding that things are really happening and there aren't things that can shift or change that it's going on overseas here within our nation as we know we have three branches of government your executive your legislative and your judicial we can all survive with the executive and and, and legislative sorry to be corrupt. One or the two, or even both together as a nation, we can still survive that. But when your judicial branch is violated, it's game over. And right now there is a targeted attack. Remember how they came after, um, Justice Clarence Thomas, and you know, they were saying about all these donors and blah and blah. Well, they're coming after Alito now, and we have more coming, you know, they're coming hard and we need to understand why they're doing it. So I'm going to show you from eight months ago, eight, not recent, like the news is telling you, eight months ago, how they were investigating the fact that the Supreme Court has and gets, quote, an Alito problem.
1: writes, quote, Mr. Shank said he learned about the Hobby Lobby opinion because he had worked for years to exploit the court's permeability. He gained access through faith, through favors traded with gatekeepers, through wealthy donors to his organization, abortion opponents, whom he called stealth missionaries. Look, th- there's the leak. Let- let's put that aside. Let's talk about the broader implications of the leak. If it is true, what does it say about the integrity of the court? <sighs>
2: Well, I think it reaffirms what you've mentioned in your opening here, Alicia, which is that Americans have lost confidence in the court for reasons that would be credible. And it's worth noting that this Hobby Lobby decision was really the precursor to Dobbs. Uh, There were myself and others who were ringing an alarm bell after that case because it was so extraordinary that the Supreme Court would hold that corporations could have religious identities. It is something that was absolutely strange, never done before, and then a very specific exception carved out just with regard to contraceptions. And one other thing that was really quite curious and alarming about that decision was that the Supreme Court allowed for this conflation, this conflation that contraception like IUD is an abortifacient. Well, that's just inconsistent with science, with medicine. It made absolutely no sense. The person who ties together Dobbs as well as Hobby Lobby, that decision is Justice Alito. He was the author for both opinions. Justice Alito,
1: of course, denies leaking the decision. What consequences could he face, though, if it came
2: out that he was, in fact, behind it? Well, one troubling aspect that we see ourselves in, whether it's Justice Thomas and his wife, Mrs. Thomas, Jenny Thomas, or in this case, Justice Alito and his wife, who had the dinner with the Ohio couple, who then presumably shared this information with Mr. Schenck, is that there's been very little enforcement of any kind of ethics norms at our Supreme Court. And this is completely inconsistent with the standards that we even hold law students to. So the Supreme Court has been able to get a pass on ethics where ethics are an incredibly important part of the American um, bar. Law students can't even become attorneys without taking a bar exam that is specifically with regard to ethics. No other branch of government within the context of the judiciary could get away with this. That includes lower court judges, attorneys, or even law students.
1: Justices Thomas, just Alita, how they have something else in common, which is that they have both been going after reproductive rights and LGBTQ rights for years. Can you talk to us sort of about the the dual efforts to both append reproductive rights and the rights of LGBTQ Americans.
2: Well, this is a very sad time in our nation right now, especially after this horrific mass shooting that just occurred in Colorado. And these issues do tie together. And the Dobbs decision, Justice Thomas went out of his way to write a concurring opinion. And in that concurring opinion, he made clear that he's not only anti-abortion, but in his view, the court should reconsider uh, its views on contraception and also marriage equality and the series of cases that ultimately decriminalize same-sex relationships. So we're not just talking about marriage equality, but the Supreme Court over the last quarter of a century also struck down laws that essentially made it illegal almost to be gay in the United States by criminalizing same-sex intimacy. For Justice Thomas, all of that should be on the chopping block.
0: everyone knows. That they're after Justice Thomas. But Alito, why? Well, it's very simple. It was because Alito said, now it's working. So it has nothing to do with anything they're telling you. Congress initiated a move to create an oversight committee to control the Supreme Court of the United States. Alito spoke up and said, no, this is not allowed. You cannot do that. In fact, House Democrats are putting him on blast over that comment, saying that, you know, he said there's no provision within the Constitution that gives him the authority to regulate the Supreme Court, period. And that's fact. And so the Senate Democrats last week, they passed a bill in, in committee that would revamp ethics and transparency standards for the court's justices. But the bill has little chance of proceeding any further in the Senate. That's what it looks like. And this is why they're coming after Alito, because now they're trying to say that, oh, all of them, remember over a month ago when I did a show how I said, you know, all of them are part of this, um, you know, organization and they're all gonna make this story up when they wanna remove people, right? And here they are targeting Alito with the same thing that they targeted Thomas.
3: Report today from ProPublica showing that a A U.S. Supreme Court Justice accepted a luxury vacation in 2008 from a billionaire Republican megadonor who would go on to have cases pending before the High Court for which the Justice did not recuse himself. And no, we're not talking about Clarence Thomas and Harlan Crowe. This time it's Justice Samuel Alito who flew with hedge fund billionaire Paul Singer to Alaska on a private jet, the cost of which could have exceeded $100,000. From the article, quote, Alito did not report the 2008 fishing trip on his annual financial disclosures. By failing to disclose the private jet flight Singer provided, Alito appears to have violated a federal law that requires justices to disclose most gifts, according to ethics law experts. Justice Alito tried to get ahead of the story by submitting and having published an op-ed in The Wall Street Journal, where he wrote in part, quote, It was and is my judgment that these facts would not cause a reasonable and unbiased person to doubt my ability to decide the matters in question impartially," unquote. Um, Let's discuss. um, So, Nia, before the article even came out, Alito you know, gave this op-ed to his friends at The Journal, disputing some of the charges and, and his need to recuse himself in writing. Quote, it was and is my judgment these facts would not cause a reasonable and unbiased person to doubt my ability to decide the matters in question impartially. He also claims he had no idea that Singer had Any business before the court, although I think if you Googled some of the matters, uh, his name would have popped up. What do you make of all this?
4: Well, listen, I think this on top of the story around uh, Clarence Thomas accepting luxury uh, gifts and and luxury trips is going to make it impossible for the Supreme Court to exist as it exists now, uh, which is sort of above above, uh, ethics rules. If you look at a lot of.
0: They're literally telling you they're changing your Supreme Court and they are moving fast and hard because they've targeted two, the third one's coming. They're coming hard with this ethics. Just listen carefully. They already said the Supreme Court is not going to look like the way it
4: look like it looks like now the data on the Supreme Court, it had been seen as sort of an above-board, apolitical institution. Over the last two or three years, that has declined. I think their approval rating has declined something like 20 points uh, in the last couple of years. It's because of some of the things they've done uh, in terms of decisions they made, but this doesn't help. You've got moves, I think, that are going to happen on Congress at some point uh, to put some laws in place uh, to make this uh, not happen again because there is the appearance of impropriety. There's also just a lack of judgment Right? I mean, here you are on the highest court in the land, and you can't think that this is a sort of improper thing to do even a sort of by appearances it's not to say that he did anything wrong or even necessarily unethical but the appearance of it it would seem to me that somebody in that position uh, would know and have the judgment to not do this to either recuse himself from these cases to know that paul singer is coming before him or certainly to list some of this stuff uh, on the documents that you have to put forward
3: one of the things that i find so odd about this is it seems like there's this very political reaction, this very political response, as opposed to, you know, looking back on it now, I should have mm-hmm. disclosed it. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, it didn't affect any decision I made, but I realize I'm on the highest court of the land and there's a special obligation and I'll, I'll do better in the future, which, as opposed to this very fiery, feisty, defensive response.
5: Right, I mean, taking... Um answers to questions from a news outlet and dumping it to a competitor, (laughs) frankly, to a competitor outlet is something that does happen in politics and perhaps not in the coverage of the Supreme Court. But Nia Malika is just so right, just this declined public Trust in the institution, and it's not just—I mean, it's def- certainly definitely the last couple of years with, with these activities, and it's certainly the last couple of months with the activities of Clarence Thomas and with uh, uh, Sam Alito, but also these nasty confirmation fights that have also kind of helped. Uh, I, I believe contribute to the decline of public trust in the Supreme Court, and also just the rulings that, that have really upended you know, public life, I think really has led to that as well.
6: Yeah, and I wanna jump in on that. Like the, the polling came out today, Like, I believe NPR, it's like nearly 60% of Americans do not have faith or little to no faith in the Supreme Court. And look, I actually spent time on the road these past few months talking to voters with the coalition of organizations like Planned Parenthood, Color of Change, National Action Network, with Demand Justice, and, and we were talking to voters and several states who want ethics reform they want to even expand the Supreme Court and it's to your point about these leaks that are coming out as well as how some of these decisions are coming out that are taking away the fundamental human rights for majority of Americans but benefiting the wealthy the wealthy elite class who are the ones that these justices are actually spending a lot of time in. And so the other thing I would say about all of this is that it's kind of comical in the response to these questions about the ethics. Listen, I'm a communications professional. (laughs) I spent a lot of time working for presidential (laughs) campaigns or Planned Parenthood. This is actually not the best way to handle a crisis communications issue. And it's actually beyond a communications issue. But as a communications strategist, I actually think they are doubling down on the problem versus actually do anything to fix I, it. I
7: won't disagree with that part. As a communications professional, what you don't want to do is something known as the Streisand effect, mm-hmm. which is something that might not have gotten a lot of attention. You take action that actually draws a lot more attention to the story. We probably would have been talking about this in the absence of the Wall Street sure. Journal op-ed, but we might not have been talking about it as long or it might right. not have had as, as much in terms of legs. And so I am not sure that I would have advised Justice Alito <laughs> to write this piece. But your question about, well, then why did he? Why would you take an action that's so political? Mm -hmm. I mean, the reality is that the way people are thinking about the legitimacy of the court these days is extremely political. You have a ruling like Dobbs that comes down and the political left says this court is illegitimate. And then you have a ruling come down like two weeks ago uh, or a couple of weeks ago that gives, uh, effectively sort of reorients how Alabama or other states in the South will carve up their their, uh, seats in the House. It will benefit Democrats politically by redrawing those lines suddenly now the court is legitimate and it's Republicans who are saying oh well, what's going on here and so the reality is that yes we do need high standards for ethics on the courts but the way most people are making judgments about do I like the Supreme Court or not is much more about do I like the rulings that they Sure. Are no
3: I absolutely um, but I guess one of the questions I have is so look let's let's just first of all we have no idea what else is out there right we've only learned about Thomas and mm-hmm. Crow. Mm-hmm. Now we've learned about Singer and Alito. There could be other yeah. stuff, even involving liberal justices. I have no idea. If there were one, and I'm making this up, so please don't think that this is anything other than my fevered imagination, <laughs> but if it were so, to Mayor going on trips with George Soros and not disclosing it, and Soros had stuff before, like I would have the exact same response to this, which is disclose it and apologize.
0: Do you think that pro wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute did you just hear that example aligning a democrat an alleged democrat sotomayor with soros guys they're not even trying to hide it anymore okay people need to be listening more can you believe he just said that let's hear that again
3: (laughs) but if it were sotomayor going on trips with george soros and not disclosing it and soros had stuff before like I would have the exact same response to this, which is, disclose it and apologize.
7: Do you think that ProPublica is doing that kind of journalism, studying the background of Sotomayor right now? I mean, I I think that's where conservatives also say... ProPublica is, is being spun as this like nonpartisan group, but they have donors as well. And if we're taking for granted the idea that if you accept money from someone, you are therefore doing their bidding or are biased, I mean, who are the people giving money to ProPublica? I, I
3: do actually think that they would. And I think they okay. would do, I think they would do it exactly to make it so you couldn't make that comment. And it might just be, that Elena Absolutely. Kagan or whoever, Sotomayor doesn't want to go King Salmon fishing in Alaska. <laughs> well, what do you make of, of this uh, argument that Alito made that, that you know, he, he used an empty seat in this private jet and it would have gone empty if he hadn't used it. Yeah, I mean, and, just... and, and, and he actually saved the government money since he had flown commercial then U.S. marshals would have had needed to accompany him.
4: I mean, listen, disclose it, right? Disclose it, what's wrong with putting it on the the documents where you're supposed to say these are sort of the in-kind gifts uh, you would've, you know, you've taken. And listen, that was an expensive seat. I mean, the idea that it was an, empty I don't even know what he's talking about. Um, But yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting that they're doubling down. We'll see if there are any more changes, right? There's certainly uh, pressure on Roberts to maybe make some rules uh, around uh, ethics, but listen, uh, you know, I guess when Thomas came out, he was a little bit more like going forward, I'll do better. So far, it doesn't look like Alito always saying that.
3: And then Durbin, uh, who's um, the Democratic chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, he reacted to this story today. Uh, take a look.
8: Let me state the obvious. There's something rotten going on in the Supreme Court of the United States of America. When we return from the July recess, we will have a markup of the Supreme Court ethics bill in the Senate Judiciary Committee. I hope before that time, Chief Justice Roberts will take a lead and show some leadership. I mean,
3: it's true that he or any one of the 500 other Supreme Court justices, however many there were, or chief justices, could impose a rule of at least disclosure. No one's saying don't do it, they're just saying disclose it.
5: Right, which is why you see Senators such as Dick Durbin, such as Sheldon Whitehouse, be much more aggressive about the need for the at least the legislative branch to exercise some oversight on the judicial branch because they feel, as Senator Durbin said, that they are not doing enough to police themselves but the court
3: says you can't do that separation of powers
5: right but that is not certainly not stopping uh the senators here what's really interesting if legislation does advance and now this is something i don't expect to actually pass you know clear the senate much less pass the house but it might prompt another way another um, instance for the white house to weigh because it's actually interesting the biden white house has not wanted to touch this issue at all they won't comment on clarence thomas and whether the president himself feels At all icky about that situation. Certainly, they have not commented on this latest ProPublica report today. I think they feel sort of where Chief Chief Justice Roberts feels that they, you know, it's their branch of government; they should police themselves.
3: And Durbin and White House getting involved in this doesn't make it look any less partisan.
7: No, and you know, we had a discussion on this show a couple of days ago about how it was good that President Biden was not, for instance, trying to fundraise off of President Trump, former President Trump being indicted. It is good to not politicize things that should not be politicized. So assuming that President Biden sort of stays out of this, he's probably doing himself a Well,
6: labor. ethics reform would also hold liberal justices accountable, too. So mm-hmm. Democrats are actually being open to that conversation. Right.
3: It's just, you know, you have Mike Lee and Tom Cotton saying this is just a bunch of left wing hacks attacking the court because they hate Clarence Thomas. And, and there is a way to approach this. I don't see anybody in the Senate doing it the way that I think.
0: Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Let's see. Let's see. Let's see what their real plan is. See, this is ha ha ha. A month ago, we're getting Alito too. Yeah, and if any of you other Supreme Court justices that are ours have done something, just come forward and say it. You no, know, even at Soros. Because here's what's really at stake. Alito was the one that told Congress, "No, you cannot control the Supreme Court of the United States." So they started launching attacks to find a way that they can regulate them. Listen to this.
9: Court wavering, and that's being generous. A bit scrutiny over the financial dealings of some of the justices. Democrats on the Senate Judiciary Committee are moving forward with a bill that would overhaul the high court's transparency requirements. The bill would, among other things, require the court to adopt an ethics code, as well as impose more rigorous rules for disclosure of gifts, travel, and income. The legislation cleared the committee along party lines. Senate Republicans accused Democrats of playing politics.
10: Liberal Democrats have been trying to destroy the Roberts Court for quite a while now because they don't like the outcome of certain decisions. Rhode Island
9: Democratic Senator Sheldon Whitehouse joins us now. He serves on the Senate Judiciary Committee and is sponsor of the Supreme Court Ethics, Recusal, and Transparency Act. Senator, good to see you briefly. Tell us what the legislation would require that's not required
11: now. Well, it would require the Supreme Court to adhere to the judicial code of conduct that all other judges must follow. And to make sure that they do, it would actually create a procedure so that whether a justice is violating the rules or not actually gets determined by someone. It would also require more disclosure to match what Members of Congress and executive officials are required to disclose about gifts of travel and hospitality and other things like that. It would require uh, when a recusal question is raised that the justice write why they did or did not recuse so that there's a record of some kind. And then it would require the uh, much better disclosure of these little flotillas of what are called amici curiae, friends of the court, uh, groups that come in and file briefs with the court. It's kind of last minute lobbying with the Supreme Court before they render a decision. And a great number of them now are essentially fake organizations screening for big special interests. And we think that the groups that fund them uh, and the real special interests behind them and whoever actually wrote the brief should all be disclosed.
9: And what would the public, in your opinion, Senator, learn that it can't learn now?
11: Well, some really simple things, like how many gifts did Justices Alito and Thomas get from the six right-wing billionaires who have now been documented to have given them various kinds of gifts? Uh, Second, with respect to Justice Thomas's recusal in the January 6th case, the simple fact that needs to be known to determine whether that was lawful or unlawful is what he knew about his wife's activities related to that case and when did he know it. So you'd get an actual answer to that question that would support a determination as to whether it was legal or illegal for him to have failed to recuse himself.
9: Senator, as you know, Republicans have said there are some very serious separation of powers issues involved here that Congress ought not to be intruding on the Supreme Court's
11: business. Your opinion on that. That's one of the funnier arguments that they make because it has absolutely no merit whatsoever. In fact, if you look at the body that right now oversees the conduct of the justices and the federal judges, it's called the Judicial Conference, and it was established by Cong- Congress. And if you look at the requirement that they have for financial disclosure, that was a law that was passed by Congress. And if you look at the rules about recusals, those are pertain to a statute passed by Congress regarding recusals. So essentially what they're saying is, it is not Congress's business to look at how a body created by Congress is implementing laws that were passed by Congress. And that obviously makes no sense at all.
9: And address Lindsey Graham's criticism that the only reason Democrats are interested in this is because they don't like
11: recent Supreme Court decisions. Well, the more interesting point is that in the long, long markup of my reform bill, not one Republican. On one occasion defended any of the reported misconduct by the justices. Uh, So. They're trying to change the subject to how evil is the Democrats motive as opposed to, wait a minute, is there really a problem at the Supreme Court? I think the facts will show that there really is a problem at the Supreme Court. And some of our best witnesses, I think, are going to be federal judges who know where the guidelines are, what the rules are, and are getting increasingly irritated with the court for not following the rules and guidelines that they have to follow
9: speaking of good witnesses would you like to see justice alito and justice thomas appear before the judiciary committee and how willing are you to go to the
11: subpoena if that's necessary i think in due course it could be very valuable for them to testify and explain what was going on but in the same way that a good lawyer prepares for a deposition before they go into the room with the witness we need to be able to do the uh, investigative work to find out exactly what went on to see the documents. And at the moment, we're getting uh, zero cooperation so far from any of the billionaires that we are pursuing who have been uh, lubricating the court with free travel and hospitality and gifts.
9: So are subpoenas on the table either for them or the justices?
11: I think uh, subpoenas are a very natural uh, result, a very appropriate result for Congress established by law that we can do that if we continue to get a stonewall and no cooperation. Again, you do these things in proper sequence in a good investigation. So I don't want to get ahead of my skis, but clearly there is a path to subpoenas. I want to ask you, Senator, about something that that
9: has has gone on in Alabama. The legislature there, controlled by Republicans, is refusing to adhere to the high court's decision that it withdraw redraw rather not withdraw but redraw congressional yeah. districts there to include a second majority majority district your thoughts on what's going on there and a state's apparent willingness to defy
11: a supreme court order well i suspect that this goes back to court and the litigants point out what's happened and that the alabama legislature just defied the supreme court and then what ordinarily happens then i believe is that a special master gets appointed To manage the situation and a court approved uh, map is produced. One additional point that I'll add if the right wing justices on the Supreme Court had not messed around with Shelby County versus Holder, had not done the damage that they did to the Voting Rights Act, none of this would be happening. Uh, The Voting Rights Act, the the law changes that uh, took apart these. Uh, districts and set them up so that there were not enough majority uh, districts um, that would have been held off by the Department of Justice early, early on. So this is the kind of conduct that you get when you have a Supreme Court that's willing to uh, degrade the Voting Rights Act. And in this case, now they darn well better enforce their decision. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, we thank you. Thank you.
0: Now. It is pretty incredible we're seeing, very incredible. In fact, you know, it's, it's really important that we understand the information that you've just seen. It's crucial to acknowledge the significance of an independent judiciary in upholding the principles of democracy, right, of this constitutional republic and safeguarding our individual rights. The separation of powers is a fundamental pillar of our Constitution. It ensures that there are checks and balances that prevent any one branch of government from becoming too powerful. This balance is essential for maintaining a free and fair society. Congress taking control over the Supreme Court of the United States however well-intentioned it may seem could have detrimental consequences for our future as a free nation and as we know it today by concentrating power in one branch of government we risk undermining the very principles that our nation was built upon the potential For abuse of power, partisan influence, and erosion of the judicial independence becomes a very real concern. And over the past three years, we have seen serious issues with judicial independence. We have seen serious judicial misconduct. But this would be beyond anything anyone would ever see. It would be the most perfect show of pretend justice, because they would be an impartial judiciary. An impartial, it would be a partial judiciary, because what we need is an impartial judiciary. It's crucial that we have that, because that is how you interpret and apply the law without bias or political influence. It ensures that justice is served fairly and equally for all citizens, regardless of their background or beliefs or political affiliation. If Congress were to take over SCOTUS, the risk of politicizing the court's decisions would be worse than what they are now. They would increase exponentially. I I would say almost instantly. This could lead to a severe loss of public trust in the judiciary and a very huge decline in the credibility of our legal system, which has already tumbled anyway, like an avalanche with everything that came post 2020. It's so important that we have an independent Supreme Court because it acts as a safeguard against potential overreach by the legislative and executive branches. It serves as a final arbiter in interpreting the constitution and ensuring that laws are passed by Congress align with the founding principles. If Congress were to take control over SCOTUS, this vital check on power would be compromised, potentially leading to a severe imbalance of authority. And we could no longer call ourselves a constitutional republic or even what people think a democracy is. It would be complete and utter Communism. So, for those that might think while the idea of the Congress taking control over SCOTUS in some shape or form may be presented as a solution to certain issues that they bring, we have to carefully consider the long term implications. The preserving the separation of power and maintaining an independent judiciary is crucial for the future of our nation as a free nation. So, we need to strive to protect. Those principles that have guided this nation for almost 250 years, ensuring that our government systems remain strong, fair, and just. While many of us, as I said, have seen the ugly side of justices, we have to remember that there's more to this than meets the eye a lot more to this. We saw they came after Clarence Thomas. Now, here's the report by ProPublica from a month ago. It came after Alito.
12: Court justice is under scrutiny. A new report from ProPublica claims Samuel Alito accepted a lavish vacation from a conservative billionaire with frequent business before the high court. The report comes amid calls to reform the court's ethics. Scott McFarlane has the latest.
13: Good morning. Tuesday's report says Justice Samuel Alito accepted a luxury fishing trip from Republican mega donor Paul Singer, but didn't recuse himself. Years later, when cases connected to Singer's business came here before the high court. Even before this reporting published, Alito was mounting a response. The report says Justice Samuel Alito did not report gifts on annual financial disclosure forms, including a private flight to Alaska and other amenities provided by billionaire hedge fund manager Paul Singer during a fishing trip in 2008. The report details that in July of that year, they stayed at the King Salmon Lodge and were served multi-course meals of Alaskan king crab legs or Kobe filet. They also enjoyed wine that cost $1,000 a bottle. According to ProPublica, Singer's Manhattan-based hedge fund was involved in at least 10 cases brought before the Supreme Court, many of them high-stakes business cases. Those cases were heard after that fishing trip in 2008, with one decision in 2014, when the high court voted 7-1 to in Singer's favor. And Justice Alito did not recuse himself from any of them. In an op-ed published hours before ProPublica's report, Justice Alito denied what he dubbed charges made against him. In reference to the ride on that private plane, Alito said that Singer allowed me to occupy what would have otherwise been an unoccupied seat, and that he stayed in a modest one-room unit. Alito wrote that he followed what I understood to be standard practice by excluding the flight from his financial report. Alito is the latest justice to respond to claims of undisclosed gifts and luxury travel. Earlier this spring, Democrats called on Justice Clarence Thomas to step down after ProPublica reported he'd accepted decades of luxury travel from a donor. It's important to note the judicial conference just recently required justices to disclose
14: travel accommodations to social events. Vlad, Anne-Marie. All right, Scott, thank you very much. For more on this, let's bring in one of the two reporters who published a story, Josh Kaplan. He reported on this story with Justin Elliott. Josh, thanks for joining us.
15: Thanks for having me.
14: So explain to us a bit more about uh, who billionaire Paul Singer is and his connection to Justice Alito.
15: Right. So Paul Singer is a hedge fund billionaire and one of the largest donors in the country to Republican candidates and causes. Um, And he also has repeatedly had business before the Supreme Court, and uh, we found that Uh, Singer took a luxury fishing trip with Sam Alito to Alaska and not only joined him on the trip, but also flew him there on a private jet. Uh, We're told that if Alito had chartered the plane himself, it could have cost easily more than $100,000.
12: Um, okay, so I know that we're not going to do your reporting justice because ProPublica always does really good research and there's levels to this, as yes. they say, right? Layers, it's not yeah. as simple as a straight line from point A to point B. Um, but that being said, let us talk about the kinds of cases that came before the court that were connected, maybe not directly, but connected to Singer. You know, there's in particular, we're talking about a case with Argentina that comes before the court over and over again, and they don't take it up until they do.
15: Mm. Right. So Singer's hedge fund is kind of modeled off. It's best known for taking investments that can make them a lot of money, but might require a bruising legal fight. And after this trip, his hedge fund came before the court at least 10 times. Um, So many of these are from this decade long battle that this hedge fund was having with the nation in Argentina. About 20 years ago, Argentina was in a devastating economic crisis. And for Singer, this created opportunity. He bought the country's debt at a deep, steep discount and then went to the ends of the earth trying to get them to pay him back in full. Um, and so throughout this really brutal litigation, both sides kept appealing to the Supreme Court. And in 2014, uh, the Supreme Court uh, agreed to intervene. Um, and Alito did not recuse himself. And he ruled with the majority in Singer's favor. Uh, Singer's hedge fund ultimately uh, made $2.4 billion from its Argentina gambit.
14: Yeah, and as you know, uh, Justice Alito, so so, so people understand, and they saw this a little bit in Scott McFarland's report for CBS News, but but you and Justin sent uh, the justice uh, a series of questions uh, to confirm what you had already uh, reported on, and you were getting ready to publish the piece. And he then, in an attempt to, I guess, preempt your story, put out an op-ed on uh, in the Wall Street Journal op, uh, editorial pages. Um, and one of the things that he says, and again, why this is an important story and why what you and Justin are, are reporting on is an important uh, for the American people is these justices have an enormous power over the lives of ordinary Americans. Mm-hmm. And at one point in the op-ed that Justice Alito writes, he says that the seat on the private jet would have gone unoccupied, like just Logically, think about it for one second. If there's a first class seat and you're an economy on a commercial airline, can you say to the flight attendant, well, you know, no one's sitting in that seat. What's the big deal? Yeah. Right. Um, So so this is why your reporting is so important. And so just break down for us what happened. You sent these questions to Alito and then you didn't hear anything back. And the first word that you got of his response was from The Wall Street Journal.
15: Actually, the first word we got from his response was the Supreme Court's head spokesperson telling us he wasn't going to respond to our questions. So we were eager to hear his perspective. Um, and then a few hours later, there was this uh, op-ed in the Wall Street Journal, which was a bit of a surprise, but we're um, glad to hear from him in any forum. Um, and he, what he said essentially is that, you know, one, he didn't have to recuse himself uh, from the cases. He said he wasn't even aware that You know Singer's hedge fund was connected to Singer and that he didn't really know Singer that well actually. Uh, And he also said he didn't have to disclose this, he said his interpretation of the rules where he doesn't have to disclose private jet flights uh, is, you know, basically was a common interpretation amongst the Supreme Court justices as he understood it, which it's worth noting here that we talked to a lot of ethics law experts, Uh, they all said that private jet flights clearly have to be disclosed by law, but I think like what this underscores here is The lack of transparency and oversight Mm. at the Supreme Court. Um, there are very few restrictions on what, uh, gifts justices can accept, which is a stark contrast from other branches of government. You know, those are rules meant to prevent conflicts of interest. And then when a potential conflict of interest arises and it's up, you know, it's time for a justice to potentially recuse themselves, the only person who decides that is the justice themselves.
12: So you just brought up the point that I that, that there's two things that I got out of your reporting, right? One is that there are some long-standing relationships. Um, that you you, br- you bring up the Federalist Society. There are some long, years-long relationships that these justices have with people. That it's not necessarily organic. It's by design to connect with other um, conservative, sometimes big donors, like minded people, people who may eventually end up on the Supreme Court. But the other big thing is when it comes to ethical standards, it is up to the interpretation of the individual court justice and there's no check for on them.
15: Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. I mean, for recusal, for instance, I mean, there is a very high standard in the law for when a judge has to recuse themselves, Um, but it's very subjective. And, you know, in the lower courts, if a justice doesn't, if a judge doesn't recuse themselves, that can be appealed. But with the Supreme Court, that's not how it works. There's no, there's no one that justices have to ask. There's no policy that uh, at least the public's aware of, and their decisions are final yeah I mean' people should it, read the article it, it's an
14: incredible it, piece of reporting time. uh Joshua and Justin mm-hmm. uh your partner who wrote this with you you guys uh, did incredible work here and it's just interesting to note that justice Alito also points out that not uh, in addition to the unoccupied seat on the private jet as Joshua just uh, indicated that he didn't really know singer so yeah. you go on like luxury trips with people you don't know well
12: if you um, getting them for free you just might but I think it, it speaks to just how complicated these um background relationships are but also he's not a friend in his op-ed that he
14: doesn't uh, pay attention to a lot of the cases that come before the supreme court as if that is some kind of a rebuttal uh josh kaplan
0: okay let's just let's just all take a moment and enjoy that train wreck that train wreck of an interview okay it was the biggest train wreck um You jump on jets, you do all these things. They're digging it up from way back when. The question is why, and the answer is control. And there's a lot of things that are happening that aren't garnering the attention they should be garnering. But I digress. Let's shift gears and talk nuclear energy. But before we do that, we must talk about (laughs) um, African nations that I spotlighted. As I told you, lots of French influence. We went into all that, Burkina Faso, right? Well, now in Niger, there was a coup. And this coup is now pointing fingers at France wanting to get militarily involved. Again, you know, history tells you exactly what's going on. You don't need someone to point it out. That area over there now was thought to be under control and it's not we have the Saudis coming in to negotiate for Ukraine no joke like what but the Saudis are now going to head negotiations for Ukraine we've got Nigeria the 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 Western African portion that France thought they had under control completely destabilized the UN is being called out in every single corner. They just shut down access to American citizens to be able to go without visas. Pay attention.
16: Well, let's bring in our international affairs editor, Philip Turl. Philip, we've got a few things going on here. Overnight statement by the, the, the coup leaders saying that France collaborating with the toppled uh, government and essentially trying to free the detained president. Distraction technique, what's going on
17: there? I think there are a couple of elements here. The first one is that we have a group of putschists who are trying to discredit uh, the former elected government. And that is why they're saying what they're saying, because the big bone of contention here is France's role in Niger, particularly in the capital Niamey, where uh, there is a lot of uh, contestation as they say in French a lot of uh, uh, ill feeling towards France that France has never really given up being the controlling force in Niger even though uh, the country is independent the former ruling a uh, colonial power still uh, has a final word on what is going on so the fact that uh, the putschists are saying that the government that they're getting rid of has tried to get France to intervene uh, to free Mohamed Bazoum is going to play in their favour. Second point is uh, that France is not going to intervene militarily in Niger right now. It has to go through ECOWAS because France can't intervene militarily uh, without going through ECOWAS because imagine the mess it would be if ECOWAS, which is also threatening to intervene militarily, did the same thing at the same time as France. Uh, It would create a, a terrible situation in the country. And the third point is that France is uh, present in Niger uh, as a dissuasive force for the fight against jihadist movements but it's not there to fight against uh, the the governing uh, powers in the country uh, there are 1500 soldiers based in Niger it's highly unlikely that France would want to intervene militarily and put the lives of those uh, soldiers at risk by doing so
16: it's also interesting geopolitically, so you have the EU, the US, you have ECOWAS, West African leaders, also talking about economic sanctions. Meanwhile, whilst this fairly soft language from the Kremlin, you have maybe an unofficial spokesperson, Yevgeny Prigozhin, saying that this is reportedly saying it's a triumph. And on the streets, we're seeing some of the protesters with Russian flags. What's going on there?
17: Uh, this is once again, I think, another attempt to break free from what many perceive as the role played by France in Niger, principally ECOWAS, the uh, Economic Community of West African States, is seen as like a puppet organization that's under the control of France and therefore all uh, the sanctions that are being announced against uh, Niger by ECOWAS uh, are being seen by those who support the purchase of yet another attempt by France to take control of the situation in the country. So they say that Russia and they see Russia as an independent force, uh, a way of turning the page of the French French colonialization within uh, Niger, a way of uh, making pastures new, if you like. And this is being played on by Uh, the Russians. Yevgeny Prigozhin has said that he welcomes this coup and that his uh, military uh, forces are ready to intervene to stabilize the situation in the country, but they won't do it for nothing. They need to be paid back uh, with some kind of cash or goods. Uh, It's hard to see what they're going to get in in Niger. Uh, Certainly there is oil, there is petroleum, there is uh, uranium, but uh, will that be enough for uh, the rulers to seduce uh, Yevgeny's forces into the country to help them uh prop up the, the these purchase that we don't know right now but i think that's where this is all coming from
16: can I also get a brief sense from you about this, this region, this sort of central uh, West Africa belt known as well, in the Sahel, but known as the coup belts now, how many coups have gone on in recent years. Um, give us a sense of what this latest instability uh,
17: could cause. Well, it's, it's true that there has been an increase over the past few years of uh, a number of coups in West Africa. If you look at the list since 1952, there have been 17 in Sudan, 11 in Burundi, 10 in Ghana, Burkina Faso and Sierra Leone, nine in Guinea-Bissau. Uh, and eight in Benin, Niger, and Nigeria. So there have been many coups uh, in, in Africa uh, over the past uh, 70 years. Uh, but more recently, if you look at the number of coups since 2017, uh, there have been 17 worldwide. 16 of those coups were in Africa. Only one was elsewhere, and that was in Myanmar. So there is a repetitive uh, situation in, in Africa where coups are quite often uh the norm if you like particularly in west africa and over the last three years since uh, the covid crisis there's only one attempted coup uh, in uh, 2020 uh, there were uh, more in uh, 2021 uh, five in all including in Mali uh, and then five again in 2022 only two of those were successful and both of them were in the same country that was Burkina Faso so we have seen a gradual increase in the number of coups uh, in African countries over the last couple of years or so uh, that is something that the United Nations has underlined and blown the whistle on saying that uh, more needs to be done to stabilize those countries to prevent coups and uh, destabilizing forces uh, which will undermine democracy if you just listen to the ads
0: to protect our rights keep this madness out of ohio abortion ohio's extreme abortion ban.
13: parental rights
0: protect her now's your chance
13: even your voice is a voter All are at risk on August 8th, in a special election to decide, Issue 1. What's true? What's really at stake? Find out now, as we get the answers from the people on both sides who say they're trying to protect Ohio's future.
0: These are things that we need to remedy going forward. We should be able to remove them without jumping through hoops. They're like the fourth unelected branch of government. You can't remove them unless there's a process. At this time right now, even in my state, the Secretary of State of Ohio is trying to pass a constitutional amendment to disallow changes to the election systems that the WEF has so nicely given to him. This... This is where we need to be. This is what we need to be focusing on. We can't fire these people. We can't remove these people at all. And yet we're sitting here talking about garbage like selling socks in, in gold and silver and Nasara Jisara and you know, rabbit holes that do nothing.
12: It's an election that will decide the future of the Ohio Constitution and it is happening in two weeks.
14: Under current law, once petition signatures are submitted, county boards of elections across the state verify them to make sure organizers have gathered the required number of signatures. If a group falls short, they have 10 days to collect more signatures. Issue 1 would eliminate that second chance, giving groups one opportunity to meet the signature requirement. Issue 1 would increase that threshold to 60% for any constitutional amendment.
8: Their proposal for all 88 counties is the most extreme in the nation. No state does that. They would empower any one small county to exercise a veto authority over what 99.9% of the rest of Ohioans in 87 counties would like a chance to vote on. An 88-county requirement is specifically intended to put a bullet through the head of the initiative process in Ohio, period.
18: The right to citizen-led initiatives with a simple majority uh, has been a crown jewel of rights that Ohioans have had since 1912. And let's be clear, Issue 1 simply takes power away from voters and it gives more power to the politicians and that's it and I don't think that Ohio voters will be deceived by this.
19: This is quite simply about protecting the Ohio Constitution about what may be to come. Special interest groups have figured out that Ohio is a relatively easy mark when it comes to amending our Constitution. they figured out that if you're willing to spend a few million dollars and run some deceitful ads, you may be able to get an extreme
14: amendment put into our state constitution. Mr. Gonadakis, according to published reports, the Vote Yes campaign received at least $1.5 million in outside funding, while the campaign warns voters about outside influence. Mm -hmm. How do you explain that?
8: Hey, look, if we want
14: to stop outside special interests, whether it be an Illinois billionaire, a liberal California billionaire, a liberal New York City billionaire, you vote yes on issue one on August 8th. We are Buckeyes. We determine what should be or not be in our Constitution. That's why we can take the for sale sign off our state Constitution by voting yes on issue one.
18: How do you react to his explanation for that? Well, the hypocrisy has no bounds, Colleen. Uh, It's hard to keep up with the flip flops. You know, first, uh, August special elections are bad. Now they're okay. At first, uh, it wasn't okay, and he wasn't going to support it as the signature threshold increased, and now he's fine with that. Uh, At first, this is absolutely absolutely not about abortions, and now this is 100% about abortions. Uh, he, This was about protecting the Constitution from special interests, but perfectly okay uh, for out-of-state uh, billionaires to influence lawmakers to rush this to the ballot in August. So, you know, again, uh, I would go with the Secretary's words uh, and actions, and it's been all over the place, so it's hard to keep up. And again, Issue 1 only punishes voters. It does not punish the politicians who are in power.
19: Uh, constitutions again are for those fundamental rights and to me it's about simply trusting the people of Ohio
8: it's all about ensuring that the majority of voices in Ohio get to see changes that they want to see for their families and their communities
14: we do that at the United States level it's a very high bar and we should be doing the same thing in the state of Ohio have a nice high bar to protect our Constitution
6: we're changing 111 years worth of
8: precedent Grassroots organizations would basically have no way to put something on the ballot if we allow issue one to pass. You know, one of the arguments that my colleagues talked about was that this was going to prevent big spending in our state from outside communities, outside places, and the reality is we've seen the exact opposite play out in this special election. There is big spending happening from every walk of life across across this United States coming into Ohio on issue one. Issue one is about freedom. It's about freedom of, of to use your voice.
12: So
0: what? Let's pretend you round up XYZ. Let's pretend we do XYZ. All right. And then what? Your elections are still bunk. There's going to be another one. And then what? Your elections are still bunk. They'll take your guns. And then what? Your elections are still bunk. They will take your kid. And then what? Your elections are still bunk. They will take your money. And then what? See, there are things that we need to be focused on, and this is just not working for me. I am extremely salty. Wake
17: up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake up, wake
0: up. You know, no matter how many times you tell people it's an op, sometimes people don't want to see the op. They're telling you it's about abortion, but it's not gonna affect the bill that they've already requested to put on the ballot but they're telling people it is about that. Let me guess, retroactive implementation? Why are so many foreign, meaning out-of-state interests, there? That should tell you everything when the Democrats are starting to make more sense. And if you look at the statistics, over a hundred years, only six citizen initiatives have happened. Over a hundred years. And and, and two of them were recent-ish. Right? 2009, 2015, I think. And they were done with 56%, 57%. But that's the thing. If they do the 88 counties, one can veto and everything's out. You just need one bad batch. You'll never be heard again. It will be full power of those that are selected. And why? Because if people pushed for a bill for no election machines, well then they need all 88 counties and they need all those signatures. And is that really gonna happen? Nope. They won't allow it now with the new threshold. They think ahead. That's why there's so many interests in Ohio right now. And that Democrat actually made sense, which is terrifying because we've all seen that the Democrats, they tell you who they are. They're not even hiding it. But the Republicans are really the big problem. The GOP is a very big problem as they wish to have control for their interests. The Democrats are simply their own marionettes. Now let's take a break. Well, well, well. So I want to enter in talking about nuclear energy, which is now considered clean energy, <laughs> so weird, especially when we have stomp technology, what could go wrong? But uh, I think it's important that we talk about something that I wrote about in detail in April. And obviously then it came to focus and this happened. And it was an article that I wrote called Spyfall versus Shadowfall. And the reason I wrote this was to out where the source of this alleged documents were and how it happened and how we were compromised and who done it and what's going on and how DHS tapped them and how the same people are involved with everything. Pretty much gave you the map of how they did it. And they haven't stopped. They came at President Trump again. And for those of you that don't know, you know, they're. Going after him for alleged documents, blah, 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 blah. And now there's another witness saying, Oh, you tried to raise footage. <sighs> That's the thing. Like, here is, where, uh, here is where, you know, you're just like, okay, what is going on here? How is this happening? Why are they continuing this story? So he's been charged allegedly with three new felonies, right? According to this uh, Mar-a-Lago classified documents case. Apparently the justice department, Mr. Jack Smith, he got three new felony charges on Thursday against president Trump. It's, uh, you know, it's, he's accusing him of asking a -a Mar-a-Lago employee to delete security camera footage. And so investigators have subpoenaed, uh, you know, Information and um, their probe is about alleged mishandling of classified documents. Now he's trying to escalate it and it's all some testimony. But the weird thing is, is that I'm looking at reports and they're almost encouraging cooperation between the alleged witnesses. And they are pushing the narrative that people should be taking a look at what, you know, Michael Cohen and that Kelsey, what what's that woman that was talking about the ketchup, and the liar? Well, that they should be working together and take an example from them of how important it is what they're doing. I kid you not, you guys. Listen to this report co-defendants it's titled co-defendants have everything to lose by not flipping on trump co defendants this is just one of the many titles where they're encouraging witnesses to get together and have chats and exchange information i kid you not this is the most weirdest thing i've ever seen
19: tell me about about um that particular exchange where Donald Trump conveys to De Oliveira that he'll take care of hiring him uh, a lawyer. I, I don't understand. Like I, I guess anybody can pay for anybody's lawyer in the United States. Is there a difference when it seems to be in the process of of potentially covering up a
10: crime? it's a cautionary signal so it's legal if they do it right but there's a guy there now lawyer lawyers a guy named stanley woodward and the trump investigation has been a full employment act for him he has a reputation of being solid but we have not simply that trump is paying him and he's representing so many people but both Waldenata and and now Carlos de Oliveira, who's represented by another person, scream out as being people who need to cooperate. They have everything to lose, nothing to gain. By the way, the, I, I thought the choice of Goodfellas here uh, was perfect because it's not this kind of somber throw. It really is bumbling. Oh wow, there's surveillance footage, and how can we go about it? It is a ham-handed conspiracy, and they are dead to rights. And I'm. Sure sure the United States said, look, you know, if you'll testify and just tell the truth about this 24-minute conversation, for example, that De Oliveira had as soon as they found out they wanted surveillance footage, the things with Tavares, they would really be looking at no jail time, maybe no charges at all. And they're not so far. They're staying loyal and and following the Robert De Niro advice. But it's terrible uh, personal advice for them. And you have to imagine that a lawyer. It's technically possible, but you just wonder, are they giving them the full advice in their self-interest? Because it doesn't point in the direction that they currently seem to be uh, pursuing.
19: Peter, what is that? Is it loyalty? Is it fealty? Is it fear? Is it hope that Donald Trump gets reelected and either hires them or... Pardons them if something gets uh, happens. Is it the idea, and you must have experienced this in your FBI days, that that some of these low-level people can't afford the kind of lawyers you need when the federal government comes at you? What what keeps De Oliveira and Nada and and Trump employee four and Trump employee five uh, on on one side of this issue as opposed to the other? If there seems to be awareness that a crime was committed by their boss and that they they weren't central to the operation.
20: that's a great question
0: guys are you hearing this are you guys hearing this they are literally telling them hey you're not going to get any jail time if you just flip on trump you have everything to lose if you just sit there you could just flip you need to learn your lesson like dude listen to them this is the most insane thing i have ever seen how is no one talking about this And, and guys the the (laughs) <laughs> the guy as i'm watching him he's on the you know the one with the little brown tie he's like way overly excited like giving a deal on air like this is the weirdest thing i've seen let me rewind this pay attention to this
19: is it fear is it hope that donald trump gets reelected and either hires them or pardons them if something gets uh, happens. Is it the idea? And you must have experienced this in your FBI days that that some of these low level people can't afford the kind of lawyers you need when the federal government comes at you. What what keeps the Oliveira and Nada and and Trump employee four and Trump employee five uh, on, on one side of this issue as opposed to the other? If there seems to be awareness that a crime was committed by their boss and that they they weren't central to the operation.
20: Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's a combination of things. Certainly the things that I've read that the media reported about uh, De La Vera and Walt Nauta, these aren't particularly sophisticated folks. You know, they, they are beholden to Trump. They worked, you know, ostensibly very hard, well-respected, you know, at, at their workplace. But at the end...
0: I'm sorry, can we see that it's Peter Strzok talking first of all? That's Peter Strzok talking first of all? Hello? Are you paying attention? <laughs> Peter Strzok is talking. Okay.
20: The day, it seems to me that they don't understand the place that they're in. They don't understand the criminal exposure that they're facing. And what's the alternative, you know, if they are to turn on Trump, their representation is going to end and they're going to have to find new, presumably new attorneys. If they do that, where are they going to work? They're going to be shut out of Trump world. And at the end of the day, the other thing that's really critically important, you know, we, we joke a little bit about how much this looks like the mob and organized crime or large drug enterprises. But in my experience, at least, at least major organized crime families typically have some sort of a code of honor Donald Trump has absolutely no code of honor. There's nothing there that is going to tie him to their interests other than to the extent that they're going to be able to continue to parrot the party line and ultimately do whatever it takes to protect Donald Trump. So I think they're in over their head. I worry that they are getting very poor advice from their attorneys. I worry that there's nobody around them amongst their friends or their family who is savvy enough and educated enough to really be able to tell them just how bad a spot they're in and show them that really right now you've got two options one is to try and cut a deal with the government or two you can follow donald trump to jail and i really reading the superseding indictment it is a strong Mm -hmm. case and i think both of them have extraordinary peril
19: Harry, uh, harry let me ask you this though in the in the case of these guys uh nada de Oliveira, number four number five does the law does the public does the system of justice care all that much because we don't necessarily believe that their motivations may have been criminal their motivations may have been loyalty to their to to the guy who employs them is the is the hope here is the thinking on the part of prosecutors that at some point they'll get better advice and they will turn around
10: yes that and that's the initial thinking and it's also when they went to them they said at some point you know, Jack Smith played hardball. Look, you're going to cooperate. Here's the here's the deal. And if you don't, we bring in charges, and we're bringing them tomorrow. And when a guy like Smith says that, he has to follow through. But the system does care in, in, in this sense. like they they are clearly a uh, part of a criminal conspiracy to obstruct justice. It doesn't matter why they did it. It doesn't matter if they wanted to be loyal. And by the way, they plainly knew it, right? They're having little uh, covert meetings in, in a little storage tunnel and trying to find out.
0: Guys, are you listening to this? He's like, we don't care why you did it. You just have to flip because we know you had like these little huddles and secret chats. People, listen to what they're telling you. They're literally stalking him or giving them a plea deal. If they flip, look at the outstanding Michael Cohen, who, by the way, blocked me on Twitter. He was really upset. You know, he doesn't like it when people call out that part of his deal is to express TDS syndrome.
10: Uh, where the uh, surveillance cameras are and the like. So... Conspiracy, they agreed to do something unlawful and did something in furtherance of it. Did they agree? Oh, yeah. They they agreed to try to keep the surveillance cameras from coming to the light of day. They agreed that the boss wanted them deleted. It doesn't matter if they're acting out of loyalty unless a judge down the line eventually says, here's a reason why I'll, I'll cut you a break. Although I think right. other judges would say that makes you all the more dangerous and I'm not cutting you a break. Uh, Peter,
19: this whole idea of security footage, I've got security footage in my house. The hard drive gets full. I want to delete it at some point. What makes that act illegal? Um, if you know at what po- is it? Is it when it happened? Is it the idea that someone's going to be very interested in this because there's a crime involved? Like, at what point do you does your deleting or asking someone to delete to delete your own security footage become a problem?
20: I think it becomes a problem the minute you understand that there's somebody in the government who's interested in it. And in this case, we had both a, uh, you know, the timing is striking, right? I mean, the Department of Justice sends a draft subpoena to one of Trump's.
0: Now, if you guys read my article, you would see that I, I told you exactly where the subpoenas were, the secret subpoenas were. I kind of freaking told you now they're telling you, right? Right. Wait till you see what happens with Epstein. But anyway, pay attention if you read my article, I'm telling you what they're telling you. Everything they planned, but they're like, yeah, we did it above board. Actually, my article says it was not on above board because you had people in there before that. So it was not above board. I pointed that out. Listen to what they're telling you. Can't believe the news isn't talking about
20: this attorneys, and the next day, Trump begins having conversations about, you know, with some of the, the his co-conspirators, we don't know about what, but then we shortly thereafter see the issuance of a subpoena, and then after that, we see, you know, Walt Nada and, you know, kind of walking around the tunnels with a flashlight looking to see where the cameras are. So the minute you know that the government is interested and intends on issuing a subpoena, and then let alone issues that subpoena, you can't go destroying that, the, the material that's demanded. I mean, that is, that's textbook obstruction of the judge justice then-
0: does anyone know when nada supposedly went looking for those secret cameras that my article talked about that they planted that they bifurcated right did did did, did it say a date pay attention this is how you get really bad people getting so cocky that they trip up pay attention
20: And that's the extraordinary thing is how broad this obstructive activity is. He's trying to destroy servers. He's trying to tell his attorney to pluck classified documents out of boxes. He's moving boxes to screw up inventories. He's trying to get his attorneys to get bogus inventories. He's trying, you know, he's promising legal representation. The scope of this obstructive activity is broader than anything I've seen.
19: And, and that makes it interesting, Harry, because if a guy knew a bit about IT, walked in, deleted the server, there may be a better argument here. But the fact that there's all sorts of communication between Trump and number two and number four about deleting it and I'm not the guy and you, ask to, you have to ask somebody else sends a different message to prosecutors and to the government.
10: Yeah, I mean, Pete couldn't be more on the money. They send it down and say, we want the surveillance footage. At that point, the surveillance footage, it could be cocaine. It could be guns. This is evidence of a crime. And and they're now going around, by the way, in terms of the Goodfellas aspect here. Oh, surveillance footage oh can we delete it you know it's so it's so kind of of uh slow on the uptake but that that's part of the story too but as pete says you know the government wants this evidence you're trying to delete it classic obstruction
19: peter this was supposed to be a case that was heard this year it's been pushed back in large part because there are a lot of documents here and even with a lot of documents some
0: And if you read my article, you would know that they didn't have a legal subpoena. They were secretly spying on Mar-a-Lago. And so they're like, they knew the government, wait a minute, it could have been China. It could have been a private company spying on him. Are you paying attention to what they're saying and how they're trying to coax people to come to their side and help them with this? Because they didn't have the subpoena
19: of them are classified, so they can't just be emailed around and and everybody can't watch it. Donald Trump doesn't like this idea. He wants to be able to review these documents on his own or with his lawyers, not in a secure facility. Uh, What
20: does that tell you? I mean, does he just not get the seriousness of this thing? Well, you know, that's an absurd request on its face, and there is, one, no precedent for any other defendant in a case involving classified information to be able to review and discuss that classified information outside of a skiff. Two, this is exactly the crime, that one of the crimes that Donald Trump has been charged with. He has been charged with mishandling classified information, and now he's asking the court to let him further continue to mishandle classified information. So, you know, whether or not I, I'm certain his attorneys told him not to ask for that, it was in the request to the court. You know, I I sort of cynically think this is an attempt to try and see if Judge Cannon will rule in his favor because the government would certainly immediately appeal that and likely it would be overturned and struck down. But what the net effect of that is, it slows all this down. And as you noted, we're already looking at a a late spring trial date next year. Everything he can do to add weeks and months to the process, I think he's absolutely going to try and do that.
0: Wow, wow. And now we have Peter Strzok is now the expert to tell us about, you know, (laughs) President Trump and his improprieties. They got caught. And that's the problem. And now they're trying to find people to just say anything. But here is something that a lot of people have not been talking about, which is a little bit concerning for me nuclear power it's pretty interesting but um let me show you a video how's that let me just introduce you to it first before i go into it because it's quite interesting this is happening in georgia this should be really considering these reactors have now been reactivated after so long and no one's really talking about it
21: in the united states something remarkable happened the third nuclear reactor at the vocal plant achieved criticality For the very first time, the first time that a new plant has done so in the US in 30 years. And for a country that has more nuclear plants than any other, it's somewhat of an indicator of the industry in general. The successful criticality at Vogel provides a thin ray of hope for the nuclear industry in the US, which has been struggling to build nuclear plants for decades. As of this recording, there is only one other unit that is under construction, and that's the twin unit over at Vogel 4. The Vogel project has been in the works for over a decade, and the costs have more than doubled from the original estimates. This is, unfortunately, a familiar story in the nuclear industry, where ambitious projects are plagued by cost overruns and construction delays. As a result, many new nuclear projects in the United States never get past the initial concept stage and are put on hold. Still, the startup at Vogel could provide a blueprint for how to avoid many of these problems. and. Although it seems challenging, could this be the start of an expansion of nuclear energy? So let's dive in and see what this means for the US nuclear industry. Building a new nuclear plant is a lengthy and complex process that involves many steps to make sure that the facility is designed, built, and operates safely. And perhaps the most important step in this process is the first time the reactor achieves criticality. Now, I'm going to massively simplify here. so. Please don't go building your own nuclear reactor based off of the back of this video. Once construction is complete, the commissioning phase begins. During this time, the plant performs various tests to ensure that the components and structures are functioning correctly. This includes tests of the reactor, cooling systems, turbine, and other key components. But the most critical step of the commissioning phase is the reactor achieving nuclear criticality. This occurs when the reactor is capable of sustaining the chain reaction, or fission, which generates heat in the reactor core. The reactor is typically loaded with uranium fuel, which is carefully monitored and controlled to make sure that the reactor operates safely and as predicted. Achieving nuclear criticality is a significant milestone in the startup of a new nuclear power plant. It signifies that the reactor is functioning correctly and capable of generating power. This step is essential to demonstrate the safety and reliability of the plant. While that sounds straightforward, Plant Vogel has had anything but an easy journey to get to this point. Vogel units three and four are a relatively new design called the AP1000, which is designed by the Westinghouse Electric Company. This new reactor promised to reduce costs by simplifying the design and allowing for modular construction of some of the components. These heavy components would be prepared at a nearby factory and then welded together on site, supposedly streamlining the construction process. These weren't the first AP1000s to be built. Westinghouse successfully built four of them in China, where they entered operation in 2018 and 19. The Vogel project in Georgia started in 2009, when the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, or NRC, issued early permits to begin work on the site, preparing the groundwork and building support structures. The original cost was about $14 billion and expected to be online in 2016 for Unit 3 and 17 for Unit 4. However, the problems were almost immediate. In 2011, an earthquake in tsunami Japan forced an extensive re-evaluation of the design, resulting in several changes to strengthen the plant against natural disasters. It wasn't until 2012 that the NRC officially approved construction of the reactors, but even that decision was not unanimous. The chairman of the panel dissented, saying not enough had been done following the Fukushima disaster. Nevertheless, in March 2013, concrete began to pour of what would eventually become the base mat under Unit 3. However, inexperience by the contractors meant that by June, the project was already 14 months behind schedule. Several problems came up that required changes to the original design, and mistakes during construction led to large amounts of the incorrect type of rebar being used, meaning portions of the concrete had to be dug up and replaced, a costly and time-consuming process for sure. In 2015, the main constructor of the project exited because of these issues leaving the future of the project uncertain. However, Westinghouse, the reactor designer, stepped in and took over construction. Although they had extensive understanding for designing and maintaining nuclear plants, they actually had very little experience in building them. Since no new plants had been built in the US in 30 years, most of the people who had actually participated in them had long retired. And as you might have guessed, despite the change in leadership, delays and setbacks continued on the project. Westinghouse, facing mounting losses from Vogel and a similar project in South Carolina, filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection in March 2017, leaving the project in a state of limbo once again. Later, it would be Bechtel and Southern Nuclear, the utility and essentially the customer of the project, that would take over the construction from Westinghouse. The work continued along slowly with cost continuing decline. As recently as February 2023, vibrations in the cooling system were found, delaying progress while additional supports were installed. The estimated cost of both units is expected to exceed $30 billion, more than double the original estimate. The delays and cost overruns have caused frustration, to say the least, among the stakeholders and led to questions about the sustainability of the project. Of the $30 billion price tag, the U.S. federal government has contributed $12 billion in federal loan guarantees. The majority of the rest is being paid for by the future customers of Vogel, in the form of higher electricity rates. Critics have argued that the delays have increased the overall cost of the project, making it less economically viable in the long run. And while Vogel is owned by a private utility company, its income is guaranteed by the Georgia Public Services Commission, which sets the rates that can be charged to consumers. If this type of public-private relationship didn't exist, it's unlikely that the project would have continued without some sort of other financial support. Nonetheless, with Vogel Unit 3 nearing the end of its commissioning phase and Unit 4 about a year later, what does this mean for the nuclear industry in the US? Surely the startup of a new reactor, even if it is a bit late, does prove its viability? Well, not exactly. The significant delays and cost overruns of the Vogel project are hard to ignore. Its sister project in South Carolina, which was also building two reactors, was abandoned in 2017 after completing about 60% of the project and spending over $9 billion. These are hard experiences to get past and convince other utilities and governments to invest in building their own nuclear power plants. In the U.S., these two units nearing the end of their construction at Vogel are the only new nuclear power projects in the foreseeable future. The next closest is the Carbon Free Power Project in Idaho, where a group of around 30 cities have joined together to create a demonstration of NuScale's small modular reactor. And that project too is facing rapidly rising costs. While the U.S. operates more nuclear power plants than any other country by a fair margin, there are no other large-scale nuclear power projects on the horizon in the U.S. With a current fleet of about 92 reactors and an average age of just over 40 years, it's the third oldest in the world behind Belgium and Switzerland. With several plants approaching the end of their life and facing economic difficulties, the U.S. government passed the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law in 2021 That included $6 billion for existing plants to continue operations that might otherwise be shutting down due to age or economic headwinds. The most likely place we'll be seeing large new plants being built is outside the US. Internationally, there's a lot of activity. Even Westinghouse, which emerged from bankruptcy in 2018, is actively participating in several bids for projects in Europe and was selected in 2022 to build as many as six units in Poland, which will rely heavily on local contractors. They will be Poland's first nuclear reactors, so information and lessons learned from the construction of the Vogel units in Georgia will be key to ensuring an on-time and on-cost delivery. Once Vogel is completed and lessons have been learned, it could help start other projects in the U.S. Vogel is being finished at a time when some alternatives to nuclear are expensive, unpopular, and don't provide the same type of large, reliable power. And the conditions may be right to move and start other nuclear projects that people have been proposing around the U.S. As we've seen, there's no shortage of new designs and sizes available. The U.S. nuclear industry needs to build on this success and work toward a low-carbon future while ensuring that safety remains a top priority, but also rethinking the approach to how nuclear plants are designed, constructed, and operated. Repeated projects that are over budget and over a decade late are certainly not going to be acceptable. So, what do you think? What does Vogel's criticality mean for the U.S. nuclear industry? Let me know down in the comments below. And thanks for joining me today. I'll see you in the next one.
12: That
0: was informative, right? Because today, the nuclear reactor has gone into effect in Georgia, which should be news. The Georgia Power Company announced it today that Unit 3 at planck Vogel in southeast Augusta has completed testing and is now sending power to the grid reliably. At its full output, 1.1 megawatts of electricity, Unit 3 can power 500,000 homes and businesses. Utilities in Georgia, Florida, and Alabama are going to be receiving the power generated from Unit 3. A fourth reactor is also nearing completion at the site, where two earlier reactors have been generating electricity for decades. Now, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission last Friday, right, on Friday, said that um, radioactive fuel could be loaded in Unit 4, which is, you know, the the phase. And it's a step that's expected to take place before September. So they're kind of moving quick. And Unit 4 is being scheduled to enter commercial operation by March. So... The third reactor was supposed to start generating power, as you heard in the video previously, in 2016, when its construction began in 2009. And it's, um, Vogel is very important because they're, you know, government officials and utilities are looking for nuclear power to allegedly alleviate climate change. They just want more control over things, though uh, this is a bifurcated issue as to where they're being placed and how they're being placed. Uh, considering that in Georgia, almost every electric customer will have to pay for this reactor, right? Georgia Power, which is the largest, um, you know, um, Atlanta-based southern company, uh, owns like 45, over 45%. I think it's it's either 46 or less than just under 46% of the reactors. And smaller shares are owned by, get this, Oglethorpe Power Corp that provides to member owned cooperatives. So like uh, Municipal Electric Authority of Georgia and stuff like that. So Oglethorpe and MAEG are planning to sell power, you know, the power that comes from the plant, they sell it in packets. This is my spiel, I know this stuff like inside out because I dealt with energy packets in Europe. So they're looking to actually take those packets and, you know, sell them to other co-ops, you know, on the panhandle or in Alabama and um, Jacksonville. So Georgia's power, the Georgia power itself has like just under 3 million customers that are already paying for the nuclear reactor. They've factored that into their bill and this is why we've been having issues with our electric bills being so high now it makes sense because they're hitting an all-time high right now but you know it's important that as this has received its commission that we are reminded of what happens to nuclear power plant by people that don't want us to flourish
19: nuclear energy is increasing important to the clean energy
8: transition and Oglethorpe Power, on behalf of 38 Georgia electric cooperatives, is a co-owner in one of the largest clean energy projects in the nation, Plant Vogel Units 3 and 4. These units represent the first advanced commercial nuclear project in the United States in more than three decades. Our significant investment in the construction of these units underscores our commitment to fuel diversity and price stability. Unit 3 has now reached commercial operation, marking a historic achievement for the energy industry, the state of Georgia, and our entire nation. We commend the hard work of the men and women that make up the Plant Vogel workforce. Now that Unit 3 is online safely, it will provide reliable, emission-free baseload power for Georgians for the next 60 to 80 years. And once both new units are online, Plant Vogel will produce more clean energy than any other United States facility. In fact, when Unit 4 reaches commercial operation, emission-free nuclear energy will account for nearly half of the energy Oglethorpe Power generates for our member cooperatives and the 4.4 million Georgians they serve. We are committed committed to a thoughtful approach to reducing carbon emissions and transitioning to a cleaner future. Vogelthorpe Power is making important investments to keep the lights on in a way that preserves both affordability and reliability. As we celebrate the commercial operation of Plant Vogel Unit 3, I can confidently say Georgia's clean energy future is bright.
1: You know,
0: as a kid, if you would have told me, hey, you know, (laughs) when it comes to nuclear energy, uh, they're gonna be referring to it as clean energy, even though the toxic byproducts are the most harmful things to the environment, uh, that one, uh, you know, it can destroy the whole face of this Terra that everyone knows and loves in an instant. And yet they're pushing it as clean energy. But you know, what concerns me is, if we did this in the past, what me? well, ironically, today, Unit 3 is online, and we must go back in time and remember how nuclear
22: facilities are not safe. That's what we have to do. In January 2010, inspectors with the UN's nuclear monitoring agency noticed something strange at the nuclear facility in Natanz, Iran. Numerous centrifuges at the crown jewel of Iran's nuclear program were failing. Centrifuges are devices that produce enriched uranium which can be used to make nuclear weapons. The cause of their failure was a mystery. It's believed the US and Israel ordered a cyber attack to slow down Iran's nuclear program. A computer worm, called Stuxnet, reportedly traveled on USB thumb drives and spread through Microsoft Windows computers that controlled the centrifuges, sending instructions for them to burn out. Stuxnet didn't simply take over a computer or steal information. It actually caused the equipment to self-destruct it's more dangerous than a computer virus. While a virus is dormant until the unwitting victim installs it, a worm can spread without being activated. Stuxnet is believed to have been created by the U.S. National Security Agency and Israeli intelligence, though neither has ever admitted responsibility. Their collaborative effort was dubbed Operation Olympic Games. It started under the Bush administration. President Obama sped it up when he came into office in 2009, heeding Bush's advice to continue the cyber attacks. President Bush believed it was the only way to prevent Israel from launching a conventional strike on Iranian nuclear facilities, like the one that targeted a Syrian nuclear reactor in 2007. Israel has never bought Iran's argument that its nuclear program is entirely peaceful for the purposes of generating electricity, for example. Iran launched its nuclear program in the 50s with the help of the U.S. through the Atoms for Peace program, in which America shared resources with countries wanting to develop atomic energy for peaceful activities. In 1970, Iran ratified the Non-Proliferation Treaty to limit its program for peaceful use. It meant Iran would have to be subject to inspection by the International Atomic Energy Agency. Those inspectors with the IAEA noticed centrifuges mysteriously failing at the start of 2010. Getting the worm into the Natanz facility was actually the final step of a carefully planned attack. This is what is believed to have happened. The NSA and the Israeli military wrote a program that digitally mapped out the workings of Iran's Natanz plant. The program is introduced into a controller computer at the plant, possibly by an oblivious plant worker. The program collects information on how the computers in the facility are configured. The agencies use the data to design a complex worm, Stuxnet. Stuxnet. is introduced into the plant's computer controllers via a USB stick. Stuxnet was designed to target computers with a specific Siemens software program. This program was used by industrial computers to control and monitor the centrifuges. The worm takes over control of the centrifuges, causing them to spin too fast or too slow. They become unbalanced, and in some cases, explode. Centrifuges spin at supersonic speeds to separate isotopes in uranium gas. Uranium enriched in 90% or more can be used to make nuclear weapons. According to the New York Times, the centrifuges first began to crash in 2008. Initially, the attacks were small and seemed like random accidents as variations in the code prompted different types of breakdowns, which confused the Iranian engineers. By the spring of 2010, the NSA and Israel's secretive intelligence unit 8200 prepared to ramp up their attack to target 1,000 centrifuges but the worm was discovered. That summer, a programming error sent the worm onto the laptop of an Iranian engineer. The laptop had reportedly been hooked up to the systems controlling the centrifuges. The Stuxnet worm was replicated across the internet, spreading wildly and attacking computers in India, Indonesia, and China. It's eventually tracked down and disassembled by security researchers. President Obama decided to continue the operation anyway, and Stuxnet took out nearly a thousand centrifuges, or about a fifth of those operating. There's been debate about how the worm actually got into the nuclear facility. According to one theory, Israel hired an Iranian double agent or agents to infect the facility with a corrupt memory stick. Another theory, according to security software firm Symantec, is that the attackers infected computers at five outside companies connected to the nuclear program and somehow managed to find its way to Natanz. Experts who analyze the computer worm say it was far more complex and brilliant than anything they had ever seen. The attackers even secretly recorded what a normal day at the plant looked like and then played those readings back to plant operators so they didn't think anything was wrong as the centrifuges were tearing themselves apart. Kind of like a pre-recorded security tape during a bank heist in movies like Ocean's Eleven. The U.S. believes the attack set back Iran's nuclear program by up to two years. Others believe this is an overestimation. Iran denied that its well-known struggles to enrich uranium were caused by Stuxnet. The country had always insisted its nuclear program was for peaceful purposes. That is, until the former head of Iran's nuclear agency let slip in 2021 that Iran's growth involved, quote, satellites, missiles, and nuclear weapons. Faridun Obastavani spoke to state media on the anniversary of the assassination of Iranian nuclear scientist Muzin Fakhrizadeh by the Israeli government. Currently, the Biden administration is trying to revive a 2015 agreement that curbs Iran's nuclear work in return for relief from sanctions. It would see Iranian oil come back on the market at a time when the US has banned Russian oil. President Trump had exited the nuclear deal. Critics worry that Iran could develop nukes under the guise of working toward peaceful ends. The Stuxnet computer worm has vast repercussions today. Computer security experts have described Stuxnet as an instruction manual of sorts. Sean McGurk, a former cybersecurity official at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, noted that the Stuxnet source code could be downloaded, modified, and directed at new targets. During an interview with 60 Minutes, he said this in reference to those who created the sophisticated cyberweapon. They opened the box. They demonstrated the capability. It's not something that can be put back. In 2012, Iranian hackers are believed to have unleashed a virus against the Saudi Arabian petroleum and natural gas company, Saudi Aramco. They stole passwords, destroyed data, and prevented rebooting on tens of thousands of computers. A document leaked by Edward Snowden and provided to The Intercept showed the NSA believed Iran had demonstrated a clear ability to learn from the capabilities and actions of others, strengthening the fears of the US intelligence community that Iran had learned from American cyber attacks it takes a small team to make videos here at NewsThink. it's really important for me to not stress out so i can feel good and be as pre- all right so here we
0: go we got our first nuclear reactor built from scratch started decades ago and just went into operation and we're forgetting about stuxnet kind of looks like biden's Alleged discussions are to pacify it on. The question should be why, considering there's so much there now, the Iraqis are really upset with um, what's going on with dinars and the value of how their money works. There's a lot of destabilization happening in the region. So why are we re-entering into a deal with iran and who says that they're going to join in now that they're cozying up to bricks those are all questions we should be asking see you tomorrow
1: they try to shut me down on MTV, but it feels so empty without me, so Come on and dance, I'm on your lips, fuck that, come on your lips, and so someone your tips and get ready cause this shit's about to get heavy, I just settled
6: on my loss Fuck you damn it, yeah. this looks like a job for me, so everybody just follow me Cause we need a little controversy, cause it feels so empty without me, I said